Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Cultural Capital Podcast. I'm Andy Hazel and here with me is Eloise Ross. Hi Andy. And our special guest for today's episode, Jerry Dimitia. Hi guys, thanks for having me back. Thanks for coming. Um, in today's episode we're going to be looking at The Magnificent Seven, uh, the Iranian drama Wednesday, May 9th, and we'll be having a look at our top three favourite revisionist westerns and the current film festival seasons that are happening in Melbourne at the moment. Yeah, so there's a lot going on. Andy and I last week went to the opening night of the Czech and Slovak Film Festival of Australia, which is in its fourth year running now. Um, and the opening night film we saw was called The Noonday Witch, Czech film adapted from a uh, sort of a nursery rhyme I think or like a folk tale called The Noonday Witch I think <laughs> so it's kind of this beautiful it's quite I don't know it's quite childlike and almost like it's being told as a storybook it's being compared fairly um, to The Babadook which mm, it also has yeah. like um, you know a children's book at its heart as a, a key to kind of its horror and it's it's The Noonday Witch so it's you know a daytime horror and I suppose the the fear comes from something psychological rather than an actual witch. So the the fear is put into the cipher of this crazy woman who doesn't really speak much apart from occasionally spouting terrifying, terrifying things to children. Um, but it's so beautifully photographed. It looks like wheat fields or grass. Um, it's a beautiful film. Yeah, I thought so too. So um, the Czech and Slovak Festival finished just last week and we're currently amid the Italian Film Festival and next week the Environmental Film Festival and the other film festival, a film festival focused on people with disabilities, begin. So do you think this is too much? Um, actually, I do. <laughs> um, I have made comment about that publicly previously that I feel that there's... I mean, even for people like us who love cinema... There's only so much you can go and see. But, you know, maybe this is a good thing. You just dip in and out one year to the next. One year I might spend more time at the French, one at the Japanese. Or I was desperate to go to the Latino Film Festival, but it was on immediately after MIF and I kind of lined up some stuff to see, yes. but I forgot all about it when it was on and I didn't. it didn't kind of enter my radar, so I couldn't get to anything. Yeah, it's the same with me in the Indian Film Festival. That started the week after MIF and I yeah. had a press pass and I was just asleep most yeah. of the time. Yeah, and the <laughs> Korean Film Festival too, I missed all of that. Yeah. It's just one after another. One finishes, another one starts. So yeah. I mean, it's great and it is really great because... Because, you know, the Czech and Slovak Film Festival, I know specifically, um, has a lot of Czech and Slovak people living in Melbourne who go to see it. And it's really wonderful to kind of embrace that community. I suppose that's the same with, you know, every other festival that focuses on something special. So maybe we shouldn't whinge, you know, as just film goers. Um, it really is a great opportunity for other cultures to be profiled in Melbourne. And, yeah, it's not yeah. just for us. And yeah. you do. You hear, um, you hear people speaking in their native tongue, whichever one you go to, and it is nice. Did you see much at the Italian Film Festival? Not yet. I'm starting this weekend. I'll probably see a few films, and I'm hoping to get to the restoration of uh, Visconti's Rocco and his brothers. Mm. I'm really looking forward to that. So I'll see probably four or five movies, Um that's a good and effort. I yeah. Think, yeah, that is a, a good effort. <laughs> Yeah, because I found, at least as with The Noonday Witch, and as I do with a lot of fe festival films I go and see, the films themselves aren't jaw-droppingly brilliant, but it is so great to be able to get an insight into the yeah. culture and the mindset and what constitutes a you know a good film from that country. Yeah. So the first major film we're going to look at <laughs> today is going to be The Magnificent Seven. Man carries a gun, he tends to use it. Dan, you dead? Pity. I had just ordered a drink from that man. 
Took a job, looking for some men to join me. Is it difficult? Impossible. How many you got so far? You and me. <laughs> Who's she? We work for her. Good lord. That's right. That man murdered my husband. I want something. I take it. He will take everything we have. So you seek revenge? I seek righteousness. But I'll take revenge. Antoine Fuqua's remake of The Magnificent Seven is a, a modern remake of John Sturge's epic, made in 1960 of the same name, which itself is a remake of Akira Kurosawa's 1954 film Seven Samurai. Antoine Fuqua takes out Yul Brenner, Steve McQueen, Charles Bronson, James Coburn and others, particularly um, notable is Eli Wallach in that mm. one. Not one of The Magnificent Seven, but, but notable all the same. Yes. Uh, and he replaces them with a big new diversity cast of Denzel Washington, Washington, Chris Pratt, Ethan Hawke, and some other non-white ethnic characters who don't really talk all that much. Although that's what I'd heard, but I was surprised that they, you know, they're quite involved anyway. Um, but I think that's one of the criticisms is that this film has this kind of new diverse cast, but but doesn't really do all that much with it. Anyway, we can get to that later. Sure. So, you know, The Magnificent Seven, it's 1879, set in Rose Creek, a small frontier town, under tight rule of a, the perfectly named villain Bartholomew Bogue, played by Peter Sarsgaard. Um, now, enlisting the protection of seven outlaws, Rose Creek brings on its own showdown. Now, what did you think of this showdown and the lead up to it, Joe? I enjoyed this movie much more than I was willing to um, enjoy it, which sounds ridiculous, <laughs> but... Um, having only recently uh, revisited the original and thinking it was a pretty good film and being generally against the whole idea of remakes, I sort of went in with a slightly negative attitude, but I let that go almost immediately. I had a really good time with this movie. I thought um, it was very well done, well directed. The scenes, the well, they're not battle scenes, what do we call them? But it does look like war, to be honest. Yeah, it's just showdowns. The showdowns. Yeah. <laughs> um, the showdowns are quite epic in comparison to the original film. I think that they're... There's just a lot more going on in all of them. Lots more. We're explosions. allowed to put a lot more violence on screen yeah. these days. That's so, right. And yeah. you notice it right from the beginning. It's mm. violent from, you know, scene one. Um, but I think, you know, the majority of the cast really handle themselves very well. Denzel's got an extraordinary screen presence. Mm, mm. One of the great screen walks. Um, <laughs> and I was really impressed by Ethan Hawke. I think he's sort of grown into having this quite weathered-looking face, which almost looks like it's made for the Western now. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. did look a really natural I think, fit, I think, yeah. in that. I, I don't like Ethan Hawke at all, and I don't think he fit in this film very oh. well. I used to like Ethan Hawke quite a lot, about 11 years ago and then ever Very specific <laughs> yeah and since since then like I was really obsessed with Gattaca in him in Gattaca but then ever since then kind of just fallen out of favour with me and I think it was Maggie's plan that really put him you know on the in the negative column for sure. me but I didn't like him at all I mean I know the kind of character that he had constructed which was like this a little bit cowardly kind of not quite fitting in on the outside um, you know he was always kind of one step behind in the plot, but I just didn't didn't buy his characterization at all. Anyway, oh, see, I didn't really see him as a coward. Mm. Um, I think he was just 
tired of killing. You know, I got this feeling that he'd been a sharpshooter during the Civil War and it was just like, how much more of this do I have to do? I understood that he was being Robert Vaughan's character from the original, this guy called Lee, who always had a nice suit and was a bit posh and wasn't didn't quite fit in and he had a lot of crises of confidence throughout the film about himself. But then Ethan seemed to go in a slightly different direction. He still had the really nice suit and but he didn't seem to have that much doubt, self-doubt, I thought, and that was something that I haven't seen him show recently quite quite a lot as in the various roles he's chosen. Um, I thought this was fairly strong, but I was really surprised at how readily they threw up uh, some pretty serious subject is- issues. I mean, within 10 minutes, you have a burning church. There's references to lynchings and all sort of stuff going mm. on, but without any direct references to anybody's race in the film itself, yeah. which is a big selling point mm. and a big thing that is going to strike anybody who sees the poster. Um, and so I thought they'd handle that in quite an interesting way. It could have been much more problematic. And in fact, I feel kind of problematic even talking about it because it's not, you know, because <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm not Antoine, Antoine Fuqua who's making, he's clearly making these decisions, you know, in a, from a position of power and, and potency. And so I thought that for somebody who's going in to see this as like a popcorn fair to expecting some guns and explosions of violence, it's maybe going to... And make them think or take them by surprise a bit. Well, I hope so. I mean, it, it kind of definitely just gets right into the Western tradition by having the initial scene of Bartholomew Bogue um, set up as, you know, the antagonist, the villain, coming in, destroying, performing an act of sacrilege in a church. Like, that's a very big deal to just go complete straight in the first scene, go for the religious icons and really kind of dig in there, which is what a lot of Westerns were doing, I think, you know, trying to kind of deal with the position of the church in society. And there was a lot of attacks put on the church and the position of the church in small towns um, and in people's approach to life. I really liked that that they went for that right away. Yeah, it was a very strong contrast to the 1960 version where, where Eli Wallach rides in, steals some cigars and slaps a guy in the face and then rides off again and then that's enough to strike the fear of God into everybody and they have to run off. And I know. That would of. strike the fear of God into me. He's quite anemic though as a villain by comparison, though I do love Eli Wallach. Mm, yeah. I also, I love this film. I know I'm going to say a lot of kind of negative stuff about it. I really got into it. I got into the mood. I just love westerns and it, you know, it engaged with so many tropes and so many icons. It was it was fantastic, I think. But I also didn't like Peter Sarsgaard. I also understood the kind of character he was kind of trying to play, like this slimy person who, who just always wanted everyone else to do his bidding because he had no guts and no physical strength. But I didn't like the way he said his lines. I didn't really like the way he held himself. I don't know, it just didn't quite work for me. I kind of wanted someone... May, I don't know, perhaps it's because I'm so used to seeing Peter Sarsgaard in a different type of role, in the really, you know, brutal, masculine, aggressive role. I, Maybe really liked, I, I totally disagree. I thought he was fantastic. I mm. thought he was one of the best things about it. He reminded me quite a bit of a 1870s Western version of Moriarty, from the, uh, Andrew Scott's Moriarty from the TV show to Sherlock, because he would do a lot oh, yeah. of subtle gestures and then a slightly dry commentary and then get other people to do the stuff for him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which I thought is an interesting way to express power in a Western. But um, there was one thing I wanted to ask you, Eloise, because you do know quite a bit about Westerns compared to most people. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and I was wondering if you thought it was possible to make a Western in 2016, or, and if so, is this what a Western looks like? I don't know. You know, I think that this film 
basically just revisits a whole lot of stuff that used to happen in movies. I don't think it's doing anything new. It's just taking taking from, you know, the swathes of Westerns that existed, the hundreds and hundreds and thousands of Westerns, um, and putting them all on screen, adding, you know, injecting a lot more violence. You know, if we talk about 2016, there is a lot more violence and there's kind of maybe more awareness of the fact that there is violence in there, which is what gives it appeal today. I also thought just I didn't really buy the frontier town. It seemed too too sincere or something. And I was thinking about, you know, because, the, you know, the one street frontier town is basically the setting of so many Westerns and it's they, they chose it for that reason. I kind of buy them more when you can just tell that it's in the Paramount back lot. <laughs> um, I feel like that's easier to kind of get into in there some way. There's that level though, of where I thought that's what I was looking at. Just right, one, just one moment. Yeah, and that's exactly what I thought of. This just looks like the back lot at some studio. Yeah, but it opened up. And you saw it positioned within the landscape, and yeah, kind perhaps. of lost that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's also something that that films can do now they can definitely create more you know much more of a landscape like that because they didn't need to film on you know the the lot so I don't know I think it works as a western but I also feel like if people are asking this question like doubting why westerns are made like this we should just bring out all the old ones again kind of on that I read Anthony Lane's review in The New Yorker and he said some interesting things. The film is teasing us throughout with the drumbeat of Elmer Bernstein's mm. original score, mm. which is finally we're rewarded with in the opening mm. credits. And I kind of said something to Jo and, um, yeah, sh- yeah, so she got into that at the, at the end. And I, I really, you didn't? I really <laughs> no, I did. enjoyed, I said, I yeah, I really yeah. enjoyed that that score was brought in at the end, you know, kind of as an homage. Um, anyway, he said... Um, There are trace, he said, traces of real history are hard to spot in Fuqua's Western, but there isn't much evidence of a real Western either. You sense that an entire genre, far from being revived or revitalized, is being plundered for handy tips. And I thought, is that really a problem? I think it's well done and I think it's an enjoyable film. has a good energy. Absolutely. Like, is it a problem if he's just taking quotations from other Westerns? I don't think so at all. Yeah. What do you think, Andy? No, not really. I mean, it felt to me as though this was a Western for somebody who knew Westerns via kids' TV shows. Like, they were aware of particular tropes and, you know, swinging doorway, doors into saloons and people reaching for their guns. And people being implausibly old, given the number of times that guns are pulled out and seem to be, arise in every single conversation, at least from what mm. we see in the first half of this film. So, I, I mean, it, it did remove me from any ability to connect with it on any sort of deeper level, which I feel like he was going for in some scenes when he started, you know, with the burning of churches and the discussions of lynching and stuff like that. I felt mm. it was trying to have a cake and eat it too in a sort of big mainstream entertainment way where every single enemy seemed to die about six or seven times. I mean, it was, it was a ridiculous amount of bloodshed. I thought the yeah. Wild Bunch had a lot of bloodshed, but that's nothing compared to, oh, he's bringing out the Gatling gun, you know, it's sort of stuff that was yeah, happening here. Was, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Never and seen then, a weapon like that. Yeah, and then there was the, the cross with that with the screaming of babies and that sort of stuff. I felt like it was, it was, it was going a bit tough, like it was a Western for somebody who had never left a city. Yeah, and it was, it made it, you know, apart from the violence, which might be quite confronting to people, it made it a very palatable story. Like, we've got Denzel Washington as the main character and he's got, you know, a history with the guy, so he's not just a random, you know, guy fighting for this town. He's actually got, you know, a personal kind of revenge that he wants to take. But at the end, there's kind of a... a, a 
reveal and I won't talk too much about it, but they talk about kind of events in his past and there's oral kind of memories recollected in the kind of that kind of weave into the soundscape. I really didn't like that at all. I was like, you're, you're telling a story about what happened. Why is this sound association is unnecessary? And there was some of that kind of threaded through that really irritated me. I think I was trying <laughs> to make psychological kind of understanding, but you're just, you're also just kind of making a really violent Western. Yeah. Mm, so, yeah. Uh, because one of the tropes of revisionist westerns that we'll talk about later is the um, rise of the role of the women in films. And uh, I was wondering what you guys thought of Hayley Bennett's character in this, who's the protagonist in a way, she, as in drawing the seven together. Yeah, I liked her a lot. I thought she did well, but she wasn't used beyond the bare minimum of what she was necessary for. She kind of appeared here and there. She had some guts and she killed some people, but she also had to have a man come and save her. So mm-hmm. it's not a feminist Western in any case. No, I sense, wouldn't call I it think. that at all. Yeah. I mean, I think there was a point at which I thought she was going to become one of the seven. Yeah. Sort of, yeah. I, I, without giving away too much of the plot here, but um, when one of them momentarily disappears, it, it did seem like, you know, she was going to step into that breach, but that didn't really happen. But um, I can't remember her name. I don't know if that's just I didn't pay enough attention. But Emma Cullen. It was Emma, was it? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. And I think, you know, there was a tendency to sort of shoot her um, in rather low-cut outfits. Which yeah, her, her bosom didn't... was perhaps more of a character than, than yeah. herself. Yeah. Mm. Yes, I think there was, I think every woman, like, between the age of 20 and 30 in this film seemed to dress like somebody, like a prostitute or a sex worker <laughs> from that era. I think mm. that's more a modern-day Antoine Foucault <laughs> move than any sort of sense of nod to realism. But um, the, is that everything that we have to say about... Yeah. The Mag-7? Mag I mean, it's definitely worth a look. I think even for people who are not familiar with the original. Yeah, lots of fun. I think I could yeah. go and see it again. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. There were bits that I that I that that irritated me, but I enjoyed it on the whole. What did we think of the comedy elements that Chris Pratt sort Chris of brought Pratt, to it? Chris Pratt, yeah. I liked him. I liked him. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it worked at all when he was being nasty. There's some scenes where he's meant to be shown to be a bit ruthless, and I, that just did not. I did not buy that at all. But perhaps that's because I've seen. We've only ever really seen Chris yeah. Pratt in mucking around in Parks and Recreation, and that's right. <laughs> being, well, this is a far cry from that. And being, <laughs> being a modern day Harrison Ford in Jurassic World, but uh, yeah. But apart from that, I thought yeah, his asides and that sort of thing. I thought that worked really well. Yeah, I I liked it. Yeah, I think all the acting was fairly strong in this actually, given mm-hmm. that so many people had so few lines or small chances to, to yeah. build their characters. Yeah. From the Middle West to the Middle East, Wednesday, May 9 is a triptych humanist drama set in modern-day Tehran. The film opens with a large crowd gathered in an upmarket street in Tehran in responding to an advertisement placed in a newspaper where a man has said he will give away 30 million rial, which is about 1,300 Australian dollars, to the person he thinks is most deserving. So the first story tells the tale of a woman who is married to a man paralysed in a workplace accident who needs an operation that costs about that same amount of money. In the second, a young woman has secretly married her lover and is forced to raise the same amount once her family discover that the man she loves has no family of his own and works as a cleaner in a hotel. 
Finally, the man who's giving away the money, played by Amar Agai, is listening to the stories of the people he's pledged to help, and he becomes overwhelmed with, overwhelmed with the responsibility, is forced to examine his reasons in a tense conversation with his wife, and finally makes his choice. But rather than exposing what you think the promise of money would offer in a Western society, what Wednesday May 9 does is explore the ways in which Iranians, particularly women, are incapacitated by debt. In a, this is shown in the form of emotional debt, blood money, literal debt, and then the emotional stories that they expose. Eloise, what did you make of Wednesday, May 9? I found it so powerful. I found the performances just really compelling. So the first story, as you said, is a woman who is kind of is married to a man who is paralysed and she gets drawn into this idea that perhaps she could get the money and get the operation paid for for her husband. And her, I can't remember the act name but she's quite famous Nikki, name is Nikki, oh, sorry. Nikki Karimi Nikki yeah. Karimi yeah and she's been lauded you know as giving this mm. excellent performance um, and she's really you know really striking and there's just a lot going on in her in her face um, in her Reminded facial expressions of, at all um, times Marion Cotillard there's a similar kind mm. of luminosity mm. about mm. her yeah mm. I, I thought she was excellent but I was really drawn into the second story and I think that's possibly because uh, the performance that, that this young of this young woman. Her name is Setare, played by Sahar Ahmad Poor. And her performance is excellent, but I also think I was drawn to it because <clears throat> it is a triptych story, but it's kind of told in a in a strange way almost, where the first story is told quite quickly and it's brought back at the end, but the main body of the film is given to the the story of Setare. Um, and I was I was so drawn in by her and her lover and just the fact what was going on with her family. I found it a really amazing film. That's her first uh, performance. Oh really? So, yeah, I did oh, a bit stunning. of research today because. Mm. I'd never seen her before, and, yeah, I was impre- equally impressed by mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I found it yeah. really, really moving, particularly the performances of those two women who, because they're wearing the black hijabs, you could, they only can really ex- act with their faces, and then it, they managed to do so much with it. It was just wonderful, particularly um, Sahar Ahmedpour. I thought she was incredible. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I thought that there was kind of a risk of going too far into cliched melodrama with this film, the potential for it in the story anyway. We can't talk too much about the ending but there is potential for that i think it's completely um completely eschewed um sentimentality because of the performances i mean this film for me kind of fulfilled what i want when i go see an iranian movie which is um deeply human storytelling social commentary um or insight but also something quite universal and it made me think a lot about um you know the ways in which the government is sort of failing in Iran, but maybe governments everywhere are failing their sort of um, end of the social contract. If there's this many people who show up at this man's door for 1300 Australian dollars, that's what the equivalent of, of it is, which mm. kind of shocked me when I, I did the uh, currency conversion. Um, I just assumed it would be so much more money that, but, you know, so little for what you know, mm. we consider that can help these people's lives. And then there's a wonderful scene... Um, when we do go to his part of the story when he opens the doors and they start coming in and the first person he meets with, who is not one of these women, starts to tell her story and the sound just kind of blurs out. Because you know what it is. You know what it is. And also it's like how many more – it's just going to be sort of like a tsunami of misery and unhappiness and need and sort of with no end. And I found that quite 
very, very effective, actually. Yeah. There's the first moment when, um, so in the second segment when Sataria is kind of, she's interrogated by her cousin who, you know, I mean, this film, basically every story has an element and even extra elements of how women are mistreated Mm -hmm. in in society. Um, And the first moment where her cousin kind of starts to berate her and get, get rising anger, I felt physically ill at that, the way that he was, speaking to her um so it was so powerful to me Mm -hmm. very very intense i did too i felt it right in my stomach yeah yeah i think it's definitely you know a cinema film i think to be i mean we watched it on a screener but i think to watch it in a cinema Mm. would be like you you almost paralyzing Mm. um because it's it's just kind of so gripping yeah it's been a long time since i've seen a drama be able to pull that sort of reaction Mm. particularly in that scene as well where you know well, because at the beginning I was a little em- like empathetic, going, "Oh, so he's falling in love with his cousin. Well, he's frustrated. There's nothing he can do. She doesn't feel mm. the same." Well, you know. But then it's, he just expresses in, in this incredible, you know, outburst of of anger and rage. And it was just amazing watching her face. I mean, the camera just held on her face for so much of that. Yeah. Mm. And just watching that transform and yeah, it was really really powerful. I thought. I also really appreciated the cinematography. I thought there was a lot of shots of windows and doors and people in small rooms, and there was this real yeah. claustrophobia that never felt forced at all. It never felt like he was trying to particularly find angles to do this. It's just a natural part yeah. of the environment living there that every door has a lock on it. Every room is kind of small and insulated against the heat, which in in turn in, in these sorts of scenarios, every room seemed kind of messy. It seemed crowded and cramped, and you could kind of feel the way that there was this. It kind of empathised, it helps you empathise, I think, with if you needed any help, empathising with the female characters and just their yeah. situations. And even even outside, I noted that too, Andy, the use of frames um, and kind of, you know, t- trapping people visually in the frame was, was used a lot as a visual motif, um, which, you know, is quite a common thing for directors to use, but it doesn't feel forced at all. Mm. Um, and it, you kind of can read, you know, I was noting the symbolism of the ways that, that certain characters were framed um, gradually through the plot to kind of mirror what was going on with them right now. And it was, yeah, it's just quite stunning. Yeah, there was even one very small scene that stood out for me where... Um uh, Sahar Ahmedpour's uh, character is, is working as a ja- as a janitor in the hotel, and she's tr- tr- keeping the lift door open by putting a bin in the doorway, mm. and the doors kept closing on her again and again and again. And I was like, um, this is, yeah, yeah, it's exactly what mentally I feel like is, we're meant to think is going on for her. Yeah, yeah, and so and at that time, there's a, a woman, you know, staying in the hotel who kind of demands these these tasks of her, probably beyond her what her role you know what she's required to do in her position as a janitor but you know she kind of says she'll do them anyway and it's a really powerful like the kind of commentary on on the way that women or or even you know other people are treated in iran um it's it's kind of unseen it's just it can come at you from anywhere Mm. and you know this woman we can't see her but we can just hear her voice continually nagging and nagging and and satare is trapped visually you know um and also symbolically um, Mm. very much so yeah highly recommend this movie Mm. definitely
And finally, we'll come to our top three revisionist westerns. So, um, first of all, I just want to outline what we're going to consider as a revisionist western. I'm sure out there in podcast land, there are other versions of what people would, might think a revisionist western is. But I want to see if this is the same thing that you guys came up with. Yeah, as well. we haven't consulted on this. So, <laughs> so I was taking it to mean any film that takes the common tropes of a western, which usually is defined as a powerful white male antihero in the majestic Midwestern American landscape with uh, undeveloped and disempowered women, Native American and Mexican characters and subverts or updates those tropes. That sounds right. Yeah? Yeah, Yeah, sure. And I don't maybe sort of deconstructs them. A revisionist is a revision, so it's... I think of it as a rewriting. So even if there is a man at the centre of the narrative, he's Mm. doing something quite unexpected. Do we think Mm. that The Magnificent Seven is a revisionist Western? The one we just saw? Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say so. Well, the original, I think, is considered... Revisionist. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Great. So there we go. So that's our, that's you know... pretty broad. <laughs> that's our standpoint. Mm-hmm. Cool. Would you like to start, Eloise? Yeah. So this is maybe a bit cheeky, and I don't know if you guys will agree with me that this is a revisionist Western, but I just couldn't help myself. At New York Film Festival two years ago, there was a Joseph L. Mankiewicz retrospective, and I saw this film that... I think he didn't like it and basically no one else liked it. It's not really held up highly as one of his great films that he made, but a film from 1970 called There Was a Crooked Man. Now, I adore this film. I think it's hilarious. I think it's so engaging. Like, it's revisionist, I suppose. It's an anti-hero Kirk Douglas. So, he robs a house and then he gets caught and basically that the setup is over and done with in the first 10 minutes of the film and then the rest of it is inside this prison in which Kirk Douglas and a whole bunch of other characters are, are held and they're trying to organise an escape but it's it's funny it, it's very aware of its history and you know in the same way that The Magnificent Seven has the introduction where they go and gather the seven the sequence at the beginning is, is just going around very quickly gathering a whole bunch of criminals who you feel very kind of you associate with them because they just seem like so human and silly um and even though they're criminals they're yeah they're just a bit dumb and doltish but so it starts off with this big band ballad and the song there was a crooked man i don't know who sings it but my favorite line is the crooked west this man was the crookedest um anyway so just right away it sets itself up as being very funny kirk douglas is the the main guy he his name is paris Pittman jr and i think i don't know just in the you know revisionist very knowing way kirk douglas is a perfect lead because he has the greatest smirk in old hollywood um i think it really engages with the Western tropes and kind of has a lot of fun with them. I don't know whether it subverts them, but the ending is is kind of a big reveal. Anyway, it's great fun. It's not very appreciated, but I love it. So if you get a chance to see it, sounds good. Yeah. yeah. Is this the film with Henry Fonda in it as Henry well? Henry Fonda is mm. is in it. Yeah, he's the he's the good cop. Oh, right. Yes, we can celebrate Kirk Douglas's impending 100th birthday by watching it. Well, yeah, and I do think because he recently, or maybe yesterday, wrote that article in the Huffington Post about how he doesn't want Donald Trump to win. Um, Anyway, I feel like that's all we need to say on that (laughs) subject because I don't like talking about the American election. But the fact, you know, that Kirk Douglas said that really resonates with the genre of the Western historically, I think, as well. Anyway, Mm -hmm. it's an interesting thing to note. Cool. And what was your number three, Joe? Uh, my number three is a movie from 1961 called The Misfits. Oh. Directed by yeah. John Huston. 
and written by Arthur Miller as a kind of love letter to his then wife, Marilyn Monroe. By the time they started shooting the film, the marriage was already spectacularly falling apart. The film is set in the time that it's written, so it's set sort of around the 1960s, and it's about the death of the Old West, and you basically have a film that has a very fragile woman and um, a series of men who are interested in her who are worn out and injured and bruised by life. The film stars Clark Gable as the ageing cowboy and it's renowned for being his final role. He actually died a couple of days after shooting yeah, finished. Yeah, two days after shooting finished. From a heart attack, um, age 59. And one of the reasons potentially for that was that the shoot for the film was excessively long due to a number of delays because of Munro's health. And he also insisted on doing his own stunts, one of which included him being dragged behind... Well, mm. I don't think he was actually dragged by a horse, but he was dragged 200 metres by something across a dry river. Oh, right. The film also stars Montgomery Clift, and he is brilliant in this movie. I'm a massive fan of his. There's a real faded beauty to this movie. It's shot in black and white. It's set in Reno and in the Nevada desert. Mm. There isn't a tremendous amount of plot. It sort of circulates around her relationship with these three men. The third man... Eli Wallach, right? Eli Wallach, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Back again. He's back again, yeah. And they're all interested in her in different ways, though she becomes Clark Gable's lover. And the plan for these three men is to round up these wild Mustangs and sell them for dog food. And she only finds out about this sort of towards the end of the movie and is utterly devastated by it because she's very sensitive, loves nature, and she's obviously positioned as this complete in contrast to these men who want to continue ravaging and rampaging across the land. But... This way of life is basically coming to an end. So mm. what I love about this movie is, is there's what this wonderful um, faded look to it and the sense that it's chronicling a dying world. And it's beautifully mirrored in the casting of those three in particular, knowing that Gable died, that Munro would be dead within a year and a half. And you see Clift after it's maybe four, four or five years after he had a car accident that left his face disfigured and so he's got this kind of ravaged beauty about him and mm. it's a beautiful film mm. it was very unappreciated i believe when it was released but we all think it's amazing now yeah <laughs> good one yeah yeah um so my number three is a film that was very much appreciated and it's a fairly obvious one for this revisionist western list and that's uh clint eastwood's unforgiven as you guys probably know it tells the story of retired gunman william money who's a violent alcoholic in the twilight of his years who examines his life and sees that he's only been responsible for death and waste. So even though he's considered a hero, um, but he knows that in the, to be a hero in the West requires a lot of evil behaviour. So to ease his conscience, he takes up a job that the, the moral quandary that he usually faces as a gun for hire isn't such a big issue. And this is to find um, the men who beat and disfigured a sex worker in the Wyoming town of Big Whiskey and earn the bounty of $1,000. So to do this, he gathers Morgan Freeman and heads there where justice is served and Eastwood, the director, begins to examine the integration of good and evil, revenge and forgiveness, and the myth of the Western. So this, he's really the perfect person to do this. I don't think there's anybody else in Hollywood who really could have given the film the depth, the depth that it has. And I think it's very interesting that he decides not to make it a star vehicle. So I thought it was quite reminiscent of John, some of John Ford's films in which he'll, he'll build a community in a town and he'll start to give you all these background characters and so you can begin to sort of empathise to a deeper degree with the larger story at hand. So there's a rich roster of supporting actors. Richard Harris is English Bob, who's a gun fighter who sees who's more myth than deed and is followed around by Saul Robinex, writer of pulp novels who's mythologizing what he sees and turning it into books 
Gene Hackman's corrupt sheriff, Little Bill Daggett, and Frances Fisher's brothel madam, Strawberry Alice, I think are also really strong. It's also interesting that it's set in an era in the 1870s when the West is starting to become mythologised and civilised, and so there's this pull towards the idea of organised society being good and this, the anti-hero you know, being bad. So um, it's kind of rightfully, I think, claimed as a modern classic, but over time I think it's started to become even even better, given that Eastwood is still making movies, and even though there's a lot of problematic stuff that seems to follow him around now. <laughs> And it's a very um, seems like a long way to Sully from this film. Yeah, yeah, but that's <laughs> well loved as well. Unforgiven, mm. a lot of people really, yeah, appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so my number two is uh, no surprises here. Barbara Stanwyck <laughs> in 40 Guns, 40 Samuel guns. Fuller's 1957 Western. So oh. this is, have you seen this, Andy? No, I have oh, not. Oh, it's so good. I'll have to lend you my, my Blu-ray. Awesome. Um, time for Barbara Stanwyck. Mm, yeah, but it's, it's excellent and it's considered a revisionist Western, I think. I mean, because Barbara Stanwyck was in the lead um and kind of had control of this whole town like it was it was her even though basically all of the people doing the fighting and the physical gun slinging were male she was in charge and i mean she had been she was such an iconic figure in revising roles for women and just action roles on screen anyway so the fact that she's there is is really key but it the opening kind of scene is this incredible cinemascope photography of gangs riding horses through some you know terrific beautiful landscape there's just a bunch of men riding horses from afar and then all of a sudden there's this close-up of Barbara Stanwyck <laughs> on a horse riding at full speed and it's incredible. So it immediately sets her up as this action woman and she just basically rules the whole town and has everyone under her little finger. She lives in a house and she could get 50 men to do anything she wanted them, her to do. It so engages with this idea of revising the Western and who controlled the West and who was part of it. It's incredible, incredibly photographed as well. It's just really beautiful. It's black and white, kind of engages with uh, a lot of tropes and a lot of really, you know, has beautiful score, beautiful music. There's, you know, an iconic song. As with all Westerns, they have a song that basically mentions the title. Um, the ti- Either the title comes from the song, as in My Darling Clementine, or the song is written for the film. It's a beautiful <coughs> song, but it's about Barbara Stanwyck and it contains the lines, she's a high-riding woman with a gun. And I believe that something maybe the film was going to be that was going to be the name of the film at some point which would have been cool but you know 40 guns is good too so anyway good one awesome okay what's your number two joe my number two is from 2007 which was a year in which three movies came out which are sort of all neo-westerns um Uh, There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men, but the film I'm going to talk about is The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, a rather long-titled film, written and directed by Australia's own Andrew Dominic and starring Brad Pitt as Jesse James and Casey Affleck as the coward Robert Ford who assassinates him. No spoiler there. This is a great deconstruction of the two founding myths of America, violence and celebrity, and it basically demystifies significant characters in Western film, um, not films, in Western mythology through this very, very beautiful, very slow burning, slow paced, close character study of these two men who, from the moment we meet them, clearly have a date with destiny with each other. 
has amazing cinematography by Roger Deakins, who's never won an Academy Award, which is like a crime against humanity. And what I love about this film is that if it's if you look at the Western as an action film, essentially, where lots of things happen, very little happens in this. It's really almost devoid of action. It's a film about psychology and interiority and few other things to say about it. The scene in which the assassination occurs is so tense and so so kind of melancholy and wonderfully handled that it's almost elegaic. It's just, you have to see it to know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and also that the film teases out this quite homoerotic charge between the two men, probably mostly coming from Robert Ford's character toward Jesse James. But, you know, I think someone in a review that I read at the time when the film came out had made a comment along, you know, the lines of if he couldn't love him while killing him was the, the, the most intimate thing that he could do. So mm. it's got an amazing score by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, who mm. are sort of making a bit of a career out of scoring westerns. Yeah, I used to study to that score. Did you? Yeah, I haven't seen the film, but I love <laughs> the score music, yeah. Yeah. Have you seen it, Andy? I have a feeling we'll be talking a bit more about it later. Oh, okay. Excellent. <laughs> well, I won't say much more then. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to stop you. Yeah. No, it was really good. Um, my number two is um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which is Robert Altman's 1971 movie starring Warren Beatty as a gambler who comes to this tiny town called Presbyterian Church and Julie Christie who takes up his offer to run the bro- well he takes up her offer to run the town's brothel yeah I was going to say Andy sorry correct yeah. yourself it's all her <laughs> it is that's one of the greatest things about this yeah I mean there's so many really interesting ways that Altman takes deconstructs this the way that he did with the long goodbye with mm. Noir he pretty much um, took the western and put it in Canadian in Canada so it's snowing constantly but there's not pretty snow it's not like settling f- snow falling mm. on cedars or anything thing it's really grotty and muddy and the whole town is unfinished i mean they started building it as they began to shoot the film so mm. they, the whole thing's shot in sequence so the town kind of appears throughout the film as the film progresses interesting it is there's so many interesting um angles that he took on this i mean it's pretty much entirely natural lighting i think there's mm. there's no like clean shaven cowboys everybody's got a big bushy beard or wild unruly hair where sex workers look like annoyed women who yeah. would really rather be somewhere else and there's no makeup or pretty f- clean dresses or anything like that and so the story follows uh, chris and Beatty's characters um, as they have these professional and personal dealings and they grow the town to be quite successful and then that attracts the attention of some outside industrial interests and then they send the big guns in to try and move them on and uh, the western cliches tend to get subverted from there. So I thought that it was really, really powerful. I mean, it's fantastic. It's really, really well aged. And the Leonard Cohen songs suit mm. perfectly. If you're going to need to make a bleak story about <laughs> fated people get in Cohen. Canada, you may as well get Leonard Cohen, yeah. I love that film. It's so beautiful. And I, no one, apart from, you know, this really key and really affecting and heartbreaking relationship between Warren Beatty and Julie Christie's characters, no one has any sympathy for anyone. It's just, it's this really callous, but not, not in a really affected way. It's just that, that everyone is getting on with their lives, basically. Mm. Um, yeah, it's like the libertarian frontier dream. but Yeah, and the ending is stunning. Mm. Yeah, there's mm. a lot of stunning moments in this film, I thought. Mm. Yeah, it was my number two. Mm. Well, I am going to bring us down to <laughs> some 
trashy Western revisionism. No. (laughs) The Quick and the Dead. What? Sam Raimi's 1995 revisionist Western starring Sharon Stone, Gene Hackman, Leonardo DiCaprio, Russell Crowe in his first American film. Apparently he was handpicked by Sharon Stone. Um, No one really knew who Russell Crowe was at that point. I haven't seen this for years. I saw it on television when I was a teenager and basically I've been wanting to see it again ever since because I loved it so much. Uh, I think that when I saw it, I hadn't seen all that many Westerns probably. I'd seen a couple on TV, but you know, it wasn't really on my radar as a genre that I was super invested in yet. I probably was 15 when I saw it. It's about Sharon Stone, the lady who so already it's starting to deal with, you know, deconstruct this idea of the Western because usually it's a man who walks into town so this time it's a lady she walks into the town of redemption (laughs) to avenge her father's death she takes part in a single elimination gunfighting contest with you know a bunch of other men in the town but it's got all your classic western tropes in there so ruthless mayor gene hackman reformed (laughs) lackey turned preacher an upstart known as the kid who is Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> lots of dust you know everyone's wearing brown it's a really beautiful film I mean you know it's Sam Raimi so what can you expect homages to high noon the good the bad and the ugly things like that biblical references also interestingly it was Woody Strode's last film so he's an actor quite famous he was in a lot of classic westerns like Two Road Together Once Upon a Time in the West and even The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance mm-hmm. who I which I think is considered by some to be a revisionist western mm-hmm. itself anyway so there's a whole lot in here that's really fun but basically there are links in some ways between the western as a genre and you know the superhero exploration of the superhero figure as a as a genre and this film kind of you know it basically puts them together because it's the editing it's really high paced it's really dissociative i mean it's you know it's not subtle at all but it's just such great fun i loved it it's a good one for a rainy day I think we should just be grateful she didn't choose bad girls. Well, yeah. I yeah. mean, there's always a left field ball when you say what your number one film's going to be. <laughs> it's a much better choice. Okay, good. Yeah. Do you approve? Have you seen it? Quick and the Dead, yeah. 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 Do you do you think I'm being silly? No, I think it's quite a good film. Yeah, okay, great. Your, okay. your number one? Well, my number one is something I just revisited recently um, as part of a other project I'm doing. Um, it's the two, uh, 2014 French film, so not an American movie, oh. uh, Far From Men. Oh, yeah, I thought you were going to say that when you <gasps> said French. I like yes. that film. Yeah. It's really, also a really Warren good. Ellis score. Correct. Nick Nagel, Warren Ellis, back again for more. Yeah. Um, this is writ- written and directed by David Olhoffen, I think is how you pronounce his name, and it's based on a short story by Albert Camus called The Guest, which doesn't really sound like you know, particularly Western source material. And it stars uh, Viggo Mortensen. Um, It's set in Algeria, uh, just at the start of the Algerian War. And the Western tropes that are quite clear in this is that you have, rather than an isolated homestead, you have an isolated school, which is where his character Daru teaches. Um, You have an expansive, isolating and often hostile landscape. And you have... um, an isolated, again, solitary hero who sort of has to face the, the community's wrath on his own. You get to hear Vigo speaking in French, Arabic and Spanish, which mm. is, you know, doesn't get any better than that. This is one of my favourite films, performances of his. I think 
it's a very quiet performance. Mm. I think he does quiet very well. And there's elements of sort of the Gary Cooper, strong, silent type about him in Interesting, this. yeah. And he just does a lot with very little. There's a wonderful, wonderfully subversive um, brothel scene in this. We're used to, in a Western movie, the men going to the brothel and basically slapping themselves on the back after they've finished as kind of congratulations for being men. But this is, um, I don't really want to say much more for people who haven't seen it, but it's... um. It's just very tender and there's this very interesting exchange between uh, Vigo's character and the um, Arabic man that he's entrusted to take across the um, Atlas Mountains to deliver to uh, court to stand trial for Mm. a crime that he's committed. So there's a moral question there. This is something he doesn't want to do. So there's that added level of complexity, which is really interesting. And, you know, in... In the true tradition of a great revisionist Western, it it tends to question where is all this killing ever going to get us and, you know, the kind of exhaustive nature of it and how, Mm. you know, there is a personal toll to all of that body count. Right. Interesting. I'm really glad to hear your perspective on that because I did see it at the cinema and I thought it was beautiful and Viggo Mortensen, you know, very good, very beautiful. But I didn't quite get that, you know, that much out of it. So I'd like to revisit it, yeah. you know, with that perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I think you should. I think you would get a lot out of it. If you, if you maybe if you approached it mm. through that sort of lens, yeah, you, yeah, you'd yeah. see it maybe slightly differently. Yeah. Well, um, for my number one, I haven't got much more to add to what you already oh. said about the assassination of Jesse James by the cow Robert Ford, because it is like a really overlooked film that kind of got buried in 2007 yeah. underneath you No know, Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood. I thought it was, uh, yeah, the cinematography incredible. Um, Roger Deakins made his own lenses for this film, which I think uh, looks even more beautiful than the other two films, because he... he did cinematography for both of those other ones as well. That's right. Yeah, so good year All three? All three. Oh, wow. But this is, I think, the most stunning of them. Um, I think Casey Affleck was probably some of the the best bit of casting this century. I think his eyes are just so perfect. Wonderfully nervous and kind of edgy. Just beautiful, yeah. 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 And there's that, you know, that line where um, where Brad Pitt's lying in the bath being Jesse James saying, I can't work out if you want to be like me or if you want to mm. be me. And that's kind of more the crux of the film than the part of where he actually gets shot. Mm. But I think unlike a lot of uh, Westerns and revisionist Westerns, the fact that this is based on a true story or oh, these are all, all actual events and that the, um, the descendants of the people involved in the, in the James gang agree, you know, is very accurate. So I think that lets you connect with it on a way that you can't with a lot of Westerns, which are more about mm. the mythology. But um, I thought it was really great the way you you said it was about you know violence and celebrity mm. were the you know, the key key themes of this film and I think that's really true. Um, this is one of the the best examples of that I think. It's also I think the supporting cast are fantastic. Sam Rockwell is really great. The, the camaraderie to the, to those guys and to the um, deconstruction of masculinity I think as well. I think it's really well handled. Yeah, I think it's just one of the the best films <laughs> the last the last decade. I think. Yeah, it's a real shame actually that. It's did, it did get buried and also... It lost a lot of money. It lost a lot of money. And yeah. Like almost all of these films, actually. Almost all these revisionist westerns didn't do that well at the yeah. box office. It's definitely worth a look. I have it on DVD, and I've had it on DVD for about five years, but I haven't watched it. But you guys, you both picked it. Mm. I think I'm going to have to, yeah, get my life together. I still feel like it needs more people to talk about how great it is because okay. it, it right. does get a bit lost. I'll add my voice mm. Um, mm, I think to it's the crowd. Are oh, there any other films that nearly made your list? Well, we were talking about um, Kelly Reichardt's Meek's Cut-Off, which, even though neither of us put it in our top three, is an immensely important film, um, kind of 
revises the the um, this kind of event, the crossing of the Oregon Trail, but there's no real commentary about it. You know, there's no action. There's kind of a few, you know, kind of bumps in the road. Uh, but basically the men are demanding that they lead, but it's the women who are the, you know, the agents of change and who mm. actually, you know, make make them kind of get across. It's a great-looking film too. I think it was shot in the original ratio that Western films were shot interesting mm. yeah i would really like to revisit it it's been a few years but that's definitely you know a imp- really important one yeah um yeah um and what did, did you have any things in well, the had, you know a lot of a lot of films i think that i mean dead man by jim jarmusch oh, good call. yeah, yeah. Mm. you know i think that's definitely an acid an western film. yeah oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my colleague and i call it an acid western um, yeah, good one. Yeah, or <laughs> even the Australian film, The Proposition. Yeah, that's, you know. that nearly made my list. Or The Tracker. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I think there's there's a lot. When you start to think about it, there's a lot that you might not even think of. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, there's a Westerns lot. You know, I mean, they commas. started, if we're thinking about, you know, um, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, the revisionist Western started in the 60s or late 50s. Mm, so, yeah. um, you know, if we're thinking about a revisionist in that term, so... Yeah, there's there's a lot. Shane, Shane, totally, definitely. <laughs> um, is yeah. A, yeah, great one. Yeah, um, I had uh, the Coen Brothers True Grit from 2010. I thought yeah. that was a really strong contender. Um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, yeah, I think, has got yeah. some really great yeah, yeah. things to say. Um, Ain't Them Body Saints, I thought was a really underrated film from yeah. a couple of years ago that I saw at MIF. Yeah. It was really strong. The Wild Bunch, um, Mix Cutoff and The Proposition also nearly. Yeah, a lot of good ones out there anyway. Yes. Now I'm in Western mode, although I am frequently in Western mode. But We're going to ride off on our ponies now. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you very much for making it to the end of Episode 10 of The Cultural Capital. Uh, where can we find you on um, on the internet? On the internet, you can find me on Twitter at Eloise Low Ross. And Joe? I'm on Twitter as well, at Joanna DiMattia. Um, I'm and at Andy Ricky, and you can find us, of course, at The Cult Cap Pod. You can also follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast, and you can tune in again in a couple of weeks when we'll be back. Thanks for joining us, Joe. Total pleasure. Thank you.